We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. The name restaurant is Restaurant, and it means restorative broth. It's a dish. As Rebecca Spang, who wrote this uh, seminal book, The Invention of the Restaurant, writes, before it was a place to eat, it was a thing to eat. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. How cool was it to have Anya von Bremsen in the studio? In this fast-paced episode, we cover Anya's tremendous journalism career, which has brought the journalist multiple James Beard Awards and a handful of reported books that are considered modern classics. These include the memoir, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, and her latest, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food History and the Meaning of Home. Ani and I talk about what makes or doesn't make a culture's national dish, and how food writing has undergone great change over the past two decades. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anya. Anya van Bremsen, welcome to This Is Taste. Great to be here, Matt. I feel like we've been like in circles. We've seen each other at a party, maybe, you know. I know, and I'm a huge fan, so I'm like really excited to talk well, to you. Well, it's kind, and I'm a huge fan of your work, and you've published many books here at Penguin Random House. Um, your current national dish we'll talk about at length, but your previous book, um, the, the Soviet book, it's in like 20 plus languages now? Something like this, Mastering the Art of Soviet yeah. Cooking. Yeah, it was memoir slash political history of the USSR. I mean, you know, I like big subjects. <laughs> but you have, but you go zoom in and you have great voice and tone with your writing. Thank you so much. We try. Let's jump right into national cuisines. And you write about how there is a problematic obviousness when defining a country's national cuisine. What do you mean? Well, to start with, there's a problem with defining a country as something that's been around for ages. We kind of assume, okay, France has been around, you know, people speak French. Italy has been around for ages. Actually, the nation itself is a very, very new concept. 1860 in Italy or something like that? Well, there was no Italy until 1860. But usually we date it to the Enlightenment, to the French Revolution, which kind of articulated the idea of a nation. Because think about it, 1830... Greece, Greek War of Independence, Greek, Greece emerges. France emerges after the revolution, 1879, No Italy until 1860. No Turkey until 1923 mm-hmm. when the Ottoman Empire collapses. So how can you have a national cuisine when you actually don't mm-hmm. have a modern concept of nation, yeah. right? And think about this as well. At the time of Italian unification, how many Italians you, th- you think spoke Italian, standard Italian? Less than 10%. Mm-hmm. At the end of the 19th century, I think less than 60% of France spoke standard French. Right. So, and you're talking about their dialects. There were, there were definitely permutations of modern Italian, but it was yeah, unrecognizable no, if you were in were, Naples and in, in Piedmonte, right? Modern Italian was kind of set up to be mm. the Florentine Italian, okay. the language of Dante. So how can you talk about cu- a unified cuisine? No. Uh, when you don't have a unified idea of a nation. And cuisine, 
you know, as the nations construct themselves, and it's always a construct that's kind of artificial, mm-hmm. cuisine becomes a very important part of identity, of soft power, of nation building. As I argue, cuisine is as important as a flag or a national anthem. And these are all also very... I mean, look at what just based. happened. We're recording this in, in late June, and we are uh, right in the tails of a, a state dinner with the prime minister of India and uh, President Biden. And yeah, problematic in many ways. But so problematic. they were using cuisine in many... You know, it's, it's interesting how cuisine was used. It was a, a plant-based diet. Exactly. And the one, the, the, the chef that uh, established cuisine as part of kind of gastro diplomacy and soft power was Marie-Antoine Carême, a 19th century French chef. Mm-hmm. He was literally, you know, he was uh, at all the state banquets. Uh, Napoleon used him. Uh, so that, that idea kind of starts in France. And you, you opened a book, you know, based in, in France and, and the book... Uh, travels from Paris to Naples to Tokyo to Sevilla, Oaxaca, and Istanbul in little tangents in between. Um, and you write about some of the earliest restaurants in Paris in 1820. And I loved that section because I had never really thought about the first restaurants. You're making the statement, it's cool, the first restaurants were in 1820. Describe those. Actually, earlier, 1820 is when they really flourished. By mm-hmm. 1820, there were 3,000 restaurants oh, okay. in Paris. It starts before the French Revolution, mm-hmm. about two decades, maybe 1760s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and restaurant, the name restaurant is restaurant, and it means restorative broth. Mm-hmm. It's a and, dish. Yeah, it's a dish. As Rebecca Spang, who wrote this uh, seminal book, The Invention of the Restaurant, writes, before it was a place to eat, it was a thing to eat. The restaurant was a restorative broth for rich people, kind of like a shishi urban spa uh, for them, because it was kind of fashionable to be sick in the, during the Enlightenment. Yeah. You know, the Enlightenment era, yeah. obsessed with health. Yeah. And also slightly obsessed with consumerism. So you have the intersection of the two, obsession with health and with consumerism. People go to these, you know, shishi uh, places called restaurants to get their little dainty cup of bouillon. It's funny, health meant wealth back then. We call it, we use the term health is wealth, but health meant wealth. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, and... Um, it's, for the first time in history, it's a place where you can have your own separate table, order from a menu with prices, and kind of be alone, but in public. And the idea really took off like crazy. And by 1820, the day that you mentioned, 3,000 restaurants in Paris. And you have to mention that it's something very Parisian. It's not just a French phenomenon. Right. It's something associated with Paris. And by 1820s, already there are like these opulent places with murals and chandeliers and dressed up people and poulet marengo and mm-hmm. truffled whatever. So they moved beyond this restorative broth and they went to like a little bit more. That in- was a very short thing. Well, then right. the revolution happened right. and we know what happened to the rich people, right? No, no one wanted to know about the rich people and their restorative broths because their heads rolled off. Rolled into the pots. <laughs> rolled yeah. into the pots, yeah. yeah. So you have kind of like this reimagination of, of, of the whole concept. When Marie- Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake. Do you know what type of cake that was? No. I, I, what would you guess would that, what would the cake be that they were, she's referring to? Did she say gâteau? I mean, it gâteau, be, yeah. I think, I think, no. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm like, just like. Did she even say it? You know, because so much of the stuff that I discover in National Dish in my new book is how like apocryphal and invented these things are. Yeah. So like, do we even know that she it's said It's true. This? It's and like, in what context did she say it? And uh, yeah. 
it's true. There's, there's definitely a French scholar who can probably come on and talk about that. And it just, I just like triggered that, triggered my mind. Um, let's talk about the reporting of this book because it's, it's significant. And, and how do you then think about that? How do you think about these countries you're going to visit when you're thinking broadly about the book before you go on these, these, these trips? So the idea behind National Dish was to take the narrative of some of the most famous dishes in the world to where it's never been before, really. Because, you know, we write cookbooks, there's a short introduction, like this dish comes from where, and this influences from this, and we write travel pieces, which I've done so much, and again, the same kind of canned history. So <laughs> I wanted to examine some of our most famous and iconic and by now globalized dishes and look at their actual stories and how their stories reflect the building and the constructions of nations. So I start in Paris because, as we talked, this is where the whole idea of the nation uh, comes from. This France is the first country that elevates its cuisine to something that's part of its soft power. The, you know, the terms like chefs, gastronomy, sauces, everything. You know, it's, yeah. It has a first cookbook with a national title in it way before the revolution in 1651, mm-hmm. which is by La Varenne. It's like cuisine française. And believe it or not, there were no national cuisines before that. So it kind of established this idea of a nation and cuisine being a part of a nation. And I investigate Potafer, which is the rich yeah. stew in a broth. You make it. Yeah, I make it. And in the process, I discovered that Paris is just this utterly globalized city. Yeah. And no one gives a hoot. And everyone trying about to, yeah. everyone is trying to tell me, oh, Anya, have you been to this mescal bar? Oh, right. And have you, like, these bao buns, you know, near me yeah. are amazing. And chocolate babka reigns supreme. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. so... And the hamburger and, and barbecue in Paris. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff, too. And maki, yeah. Uh, anyway, so from there, I go to Naples. Because Naples is where uh, is the home of not just pizza, which is you know a seminally important dish that I look at, but also pasta al pomodoro. Mm-hmm. This is where basically the carbs met, met the tomato sauce. <laughs> That's a great moment. Crucial, crucial, <laughs> crucial. Moment. I want to get to Naples, but before we get into Naples and, and Neapolitan pizza, I want to just like step back one quick second and ask you about this compulsion that we have, because you, you mentioned in, in passing it was kind of annoying, but like we as food writers have this compulsion to tie a place with a food. But that's like very problematic as you report. It's problematic on so many levels because the foods, like who defines heritage? Who does the food belong to? You know, it can be shared by so many different nations because the borders didn't exist. But somewhere in the book, I I say that, oh, authenticity, it's such a monster marketing tool. Yeah. What is authentic? We project our very essentialist ideas about what is authentic onto other countries. Yeah. We go to Puerto Rico, we want to see the mom and pops, you know, dancing salsa and eating mofongo. What if they want to have a family outing to McDonald's, mm-hmm. not to glorify McDonald's? No, or go to like a barbecue restaurant. Or go to a barbecue restaurant. Uh, so we kind of essentialize cultures and we freeze them in place and we want to find the authentic where all the locals yeah. go. And of course, these places exist and they're amazing. Yeah. And to be there is a thrill. But we have to kind of let cultures develop as they are yeah. on their terms, not on our terms of the tourist who wants to see, you know, this kind of sanitized, but still, you know, very authentic. Yeah. We had Alicia Kennedy on uh, and we'll have her on again. And she taught a course about this exact topic, which I think was great scholarship. Back to Naples. Let's talk about what you found there. You 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 shadow with a few chefs. Um, we were just talking off Mike about how Naples and spe- specifically the Spanish Quarter is a pretty dark and 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 
historical place. So what did you find there? So many interesting things about pizza. For instance, one the one discovery was, you know, Pizza Margarita, which was named after Queen Margarita mm-hmm. after the unification of Italy, who comes to the palace and orders, you know, from the pizzaiolo. Yeah. The color of the flag. Esposito, the color of the flag. Yada, yada. Total bull. <laughs> There's no you such can thing. say bullshit, by the way. Okay, total bullshit. There you yeah. go. Uh, total, total fabrication, uh, for example. The other thing that's fascinating about pizza, we think about it. It's a national dish of Italy, all Italian. It, the northern Italians, oh, man, they, they were so vicious to it. Like, either they didn't know it, most mm-hmm. of them didn't know it. And, like, you know, Carlo Collodi, the author of Pinocchio, mm-hmm. he did this, like, travel tales for Italian children that was taught in schools. And said, what can I compare pizza to? Some kind of complicated filth. <laughs> yeah. So, it, like, it was... Real be, shade towards the southern Italians and those yeah, northern like, snobs. like being sort of, yeah, Naples is Africa. Like, yeah. it's always, like, dismissals of, you know, the Mezzogiorno southern Italy as yeah. Africa. So we have this, like, racially sort of culprit. Yeah. Uh, and very disparaging remarks about pizza. So pizza doesn't really become a famous dish and certainly doesn't become an all-Italian dish until the moment when the immigrants start immigrating from Italy because they're really poor and they're mostly from the South. They establish restaurants and home cooking, you know, in South and North America. Yeah, in uh, New York City, in Lombardi's yeah, and, and pizza, pizza, you can argue that pizza really takes off as an Italian national symbol abroad in the diaspora. Yeah. So this is the kind of fascinating... Uh, stuff that I'm, I'm discovering in but this book. But then we flip back to the neo-Neapolitan movement that happened in New York in the 2010s and Roberta's centered around there and you, you, you could go and name your favorite Caste, you could, Industry Pizza, all these places that do Neapolitan and New Neo and we, then we look back to Naples and we went back and said this is where the motherland of pizza is. So as food writers, I think we are comp, it's complicated and we're compromised. You know there's a term for this called the pizza effect <laughs> that I talk about it in the Naples chapter. It was actually uh, coined by a Hindu monk in relation to yoga. Mm. And yoga was like no big deal in India. And then abroad it became this huge phenomenon. And then it returned to India in a reimagined form and kind of was subjected to a new reevaluation. So this is kind of this constant loop between the country of origin and the diaspora and our sort of, you know, millennial projections, uh, gourmet projections. <laughs> and it's fascinating. And yeah. I mean, I'm looking a lot of this at a lot of this in national dish and just kind of exposing how interesting and complicated and uh, not one dimensional. No, and it so you shows... think you know pizza. Well, I mean, no, you we, don't. we don't really. Well, let's transition to Japan. You write about rice, and I would like to hear about that. But I'd like to hear about pizza in Japan because just a transition from Naples, it's pretty good there. Did you find some good pizza in Japan? Yeah. The, the funny thing is that at my last day in Naples, I judged the pizza competition. Yeah. Uh, one of the <laughs> pizzaiolos brought me in as a judge. Fun. And I go, come in, and there's like all these Japanese cameras. NHK is there. Yeah. Japanese television. So it's like this big event in Japan. Most of the contestants are Japanese. And the Neapolitans are going, but you know what? <laughs> we better just go home and retire. These guys, <laughs> these guys are just so good. But in the last five years especially, there's this kind of movement um, – for Japanese pizza. And the Japanese Neapolitan pizza is lighter and smaller. Yeah, of course. And a lot more expensive. It's like, you know, over 20 bucks. Yeah. And there's this whole kind of technique of pinching it to create air bubbles and bake it really close to the fire. So to my taste, I'm sorry, it's burnt. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Leopard, this, this is the, my, when the leoparding becomes too heavy, it becomes burnt. There's a name for it. Ne- leoparding, you know, with like those spots on pizza. And, oh right. On Neo with those little bursts are called leoparding. Adam know. Kubin, I think, came up with that. The guy, you know, Adam Kubin, pizza journalist. Right, right. Oh, that's too funny. <laughs> the leoparding. Yeah, so the leoparding makes it like really burnt. So yeah. it's burnt, expensive, and small, but it has a huge following. Yeah, it's interesting, and and we'll talk about let's talk about rice because we've covered rice cultivation on taste, and the and we went to a competition um, in Japan that was strictly for rice cultivation. So what are you talking about when you talk about rice as a national dish in Japan? Well, there are two dishes that I I look at in Tokyo. It's rice and ramen. Yeah. Ramen is a borrowed dish from China that became kind of the star of people's cuisine because it fueled the post-war reconstruction as a cheap starch. We brought wheat. We being Americans brought wheat to Japan. Well, you didn't bring it, but you know, yeah. you, you dumped it. We we dumped a lot of wheat in Japan. Correct uh, uh, correction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was not bringing; there was dumping. To right. avert the red scare, right? But that's a whole other. Subject. Ooh, yeah. yeah. But 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 ramen is a modern dish in Japan. Right. So, but rice is is in contrast is imbued with this almost kind of holy meaning as like the expression of the Japanese self. You know, the rice paddy is a symbol of Japan. Whiteness, you know, like again, we get into racially tinted, you know, territory. The, you know, in, in yeah. during World War II, the rice was the expression of the purity of the mm. Japanese self, you know, the whiteness so, you know, as opposed to you know, Chinese or whatever. So like there's this imperialist thing. The fact is, and rice is the cornerstone of washuku, you know, the Japanese meal of like rice mm-hmm. and three side dishes and miso soup that got UNESCO yeah. status and it's considered like the classic Japanese meal. The problem is rice consumption is way down. Yeah. And Same in Korea as well. Yeah. 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 Because again, we're dealing with such a globalized context. Why should Japanese be confined uh, to eating rice all the time. They don't want to be. They can eat any starch. What is substituting then? Uh, pasta, Yeah. for instance. I did a very funny thing. I, I did some polling. I, I, I conducted like this. <laughs> Amateur poll at that uh, at the Depachika, at the department store nice. food poll. And uh, I, which one? Isetan? No, Takashimaya. Mm. And I sort of started asking people, what do you think is more Japanese, rice, uh, like, or ramen or pasta? And they're like, oh, pasta is Japanese. <laughs> I said, what do you think is more, you know, some ramen chain or McDonald's? They go, oh, McDonald's is Japanese. Oh, then funny. I say shoe, which is shoe pastry. French. Yeah, shoe. Oh, wagashi. They also say, like, but wagashi is Japanese. So there's a level of kind of internalization. I mean, we call it cultural appropriation. Some scholars would call it indigenization. Huh. Uh, for the Japanese, you know, the way that they absorb foreign influences, foreign cuisines, but they make it their own. It's a monoculture there with- too. When you have a monoculture and immigration is not like many other parts of the world, you can internalize these differences and kind of like own them in a way that is kind of different. But Japan always internalized the Chinese values. Right. And then after, you know, they kind of denigrate, started denigrating uh, Chinese in this colonialist way, it became Western values. Yeah. So, and, and you know, it prides itself in its genius to absorb other ideas and make them Japanese. So you have this leoparding on the pizza. Yeah. And like one pizzaiolo told me, oh, you know, I don't need to go to Naples. We, we Japanese, you know, we make our pizza Japanese and we do it better than them. It's a fine line because you think about pride and you think about self-sufficiency um, or self uh uh, confidence and sometimes you're like I don't need to go there but ultimately is there a right answer do you have to go to origin to figure out this these foods I don't think so I think food everything travels so fast and who are we 
to tell the Japanese whether they should go to Naples. This is a problem for me with like, if you want to talk about our colonial American gaze, we're not to be, you know, in this book, I do a lot of talking to people. I want to hear their side of the story. I don't judge. Fully agree with that a statement that you made. Um, I feel like uh, who are we to judge and we can't say who owns what. And, and this is truly what uh, the, the word, na- I mean, the national dish is the title. Um, but obviously it's a wink, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Which is Absolutely. really cool about Well, national dish is an idea. It's yeah. a powerful idea. It's an idea. It's not a reality. Right. It's a construct. So it, it does exist and it doesn't. Are you ready to do the media where someone who maybe hasn't read your book is like, so tell us the national dishes of five countries? Oh, they always do, yeah. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've done them. Even if they have read the book because... Yeah. So I have six countries there. Yeah. And it was supposed to be longer, but then the pandemic happened. And the whole vaccine nationalism and the whole kind of reinforcement of the border. So it's kind of this nationalistic thing was happening. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't travel to more countries. So we ended up, which is good because yeah. the chapters are Yeah, the book, long. Is, uh, the book is, is full. And, and you can tell a real story. In- yeah, you did an amazing job just distilling your travels. I want to segue to Mexico. Is there something that just like Americans are missing about the, the the food culture, the food ways of Mexico? And you go to Oaxaca particularly, but I'm just saying broadly as a country. I go to Oaxaca for, yeah, for the maize tortillas, for mm-hmm. the corn tortillas and for the mole. I think a very important thing missing is the atole. And it's not mm. quite a food and it's not quite a drink. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely indigenous. Describe and it. It was, the, you know, atole is essentially a morning drink mm-hmm. for the campesinos, for the farmers. Uh, and it's thickened with masa. Yeah. And usually aerated and, and frothy. It's like, a, it's like a little bit more than a porridge. I mean, I think. It's between porridge and soup. It's in between soup yeah. and porridge, right? That's right. And it's kind of a food group of its own. Yeah. And, um, in, in Mexico, it's becoming really important, like the whole the whole drinks thing and foamy drinks, because to the indigenous population, for instance, the Zapotecs had the idea of this vital sacred force called P or PI, mm-hmm. uh, and it came from th- frothing chocolate, for instance. The, so there were religious implications. And uh, it's in, 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 the, in the mountains, in, in remote indigenous communities, it's like the morning pick-me-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, really important. And no one here is really acknowledging it. Uh, it's because it's kind of boring, right? You can't you can't construct the whole thing. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's tricky because it is so indigenous, and it's yeah. not something you're going to see in like Epicurious, right? Well, no shade to Epicurious. Maybe they do have a recipe, but like you're not going to see most. This really famous Oaxacan cook, Abigail Mendoza, told me, you know, like. You foreigners, you think of Mexican food as like really spicy and racy and whatever, but atole is the opposite. And mm-hmm. she made something called chocolate atole, which is done with, you know, this cacao, you know, not really cacao pods, but special pods, nothing to do with chocolate, that takes so much effort. And you froth it, you aerate it, it's like, you know, you bury the pods. It takes like weeks. And then it doesn't taste like anything. Yeah. It's just because you appreciate it for the froth, for the refinement. It's more of a textural thing, like a Chinese cooking often texture is one of the, the Exactly. First notes. It's like shark's fin or something. Yeah, it's exactly. Really shark's fin is a great example because yeah. it's or just like frying techniques in yeah. China, maybe it would fall flat on the American palate, but it's about texture. So but in Mexico you're beginning to see uh, as indigenous labor, indigenous cuisine becomes, you know, revalorized or valorized finally, you see more and more atolerias because you can, like, mm-hmm. flavor it with anything. Uh, there's this great book, Bebidas de Oaxaca, The Drinks of Oaxaca, that a friend of mine wrote uh, because it's, it's like there's so many regional variations. So I'm hoping we're going to see atolerias. I love that choice, Anya. I think yeah. that's a really—I uh, I knew very little about it having just tried it once. 
It seems like several of these iconic canonical dishes uh, first surfaced like 100 years ago, around 1920. We're talking about tapas, Neapolitan pizza, and mole poblano. What was it about the 1920s in this kind of zone that created so much of this innovation? I think 1920s, well, it's in some ways it's random. Like, you know, the Mexican Revolution happened in 1910. Mm-hmm. So in 1920s, you have the nation building already beginning. Yeah. Uh, Russian Revolution, 1917. Uh, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Uh, it's like a lot of stuff, like World War I. Yeah. A lot of stuff happened in the world. Yeah. And The Great uh, Depression. I guess the, tw- the Roaring Twenties into the Great Depression. Yeah, so. the Great Depression. But it also has to do a lot with uh, automobile travel. Yeah. The car travel. That's what I wanted to find out about. You yeah. kind of, uh, we talk about national dishes, but people think, okay, national dishes might be invented or kind of constructed, but regional dishes are authentic. No, because the regions were like really being discovered with the car travel, with the guidebook. Think of Michelin, think of the touring club Italiano. So suddenly for the car tourists, for the car enthusiast, uh, yeah. all these regions are putting up the show and developing regional dishes. Um, but I think 1920s, these dishes weren't invented in the 1920s, obviously. The, well, that's the point of your book, but I think it's more the, the visibility. It's about the narrative. Yeah. It's about the conversation. And a lot of the nation building is already completed by then. You know, the 19th century part of it, as I said, World War One happens, which is this cataclysmic event. The Ottoman Empire collapses. So 20s, 30s is when nations really start to talk about their nationhood mm-hmm. And their national dishes. And that might have been the invention of food media, right? Because the in some ways, I mean, it goes back. We our scholarship goes back um, to the 19th century, but I think there's uh, the, the touring books were like the first guidebooks. Exactly, exactly. And the touring, you know, for for the again for the auto automobile mm-hmm. enthusiasts who are white and male. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But but yeah, the the kind of the descriptive. Uh, I mean, it starts a little bit before with Kurnonsky in, in France, right. but the 1920s is very in world fairs and that kind of stuff. So America's shadow is large and wide around the world, especially with food. I'm thinking uh, in post-war Japan, America dumping wheat subsidies, as you say. Uh, military, American military presence in Korea since the 1950s. Uh, corn in Mexico post-NAFTA, which we've written about on Taste. Um, I'd like to know, let's go to the current times. Where is American policy most affecting foodways right now? I don't think there's one particular place. I'd be very curious to see what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq after such a such a large and no one talks about the food waste and how much what was dumped there in terms of agri agri surplus i think you have kind of a more of a steady distribution of american influence through the likes of monsanto which is like affecting farming in so many communities all over the world but also uh, creating grassroots movement against it. Like, you know, one reason why in Mexico tortilla became like this national pride, which was very recent, was uh, with NAFTA and uh, after, you know, the GMO, the whole yeah. GMO scare. So there are like powerful grassroots movements against Monsanto, McDonald's. Mm. I mean, I think McDonald's you, came to mind right away. You don't think about it, but yeah, everywhere there's I, McDonald's. I think of it right away and, and just thinking how, and then just like McDonald's being like having the effect where there's McDonald's cl- copycats and all the other chains. In I the would go- have to say Starbucks. I'm seeing more sure. more Starbucks. Uh, and the way that Starbucks is, you know, again, indigenized and localized. Like I have a house in Istanbul mm-hmm. and one of the most beautiful Starbucks, like right on the Bosphorus with the terrace. Uh, is is in Istanbul and it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, and um, yeah. So so these fast food chains. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm seeing Burger King. Yeah, hugely important. Um, yeah. So this whole idea of fast food, 
there's another phenomenon the Mexicans called coca colonization. Like in the deepest uh, indigenous communities. I'm bringing uh, processed sugars to indigenous communities through soda can't be good. No, no. Can't be but good. it's, again, who are we to judge? Because no. there's, there's one, one uh, anthropologist that did all this works, how Coca-Cola, because it was so prestigious yeah. and such a big deal, how it was incorporated into indigenous fiestas and rituals. So, like, everywhere you go, there's this big, you know, bottle of Pepsi or Coke, like, enthroned yeah. on, you know, the, the tablecloth. And I don't judge. No, fascinating. This, this, this it, means a lot, right? It's our job, and you do it so well. You're such a you know, amazing journalist and somebody I admire deeply, is to not judge. It's just to surface these questions, and the question I asked you was difficult. Where is American food or America's influence, you know, fucking up the world? And that's a tough question, and I think you made a great answer about McDonald's. Oh, sure it did. I mean, this, you know, I, mean I think it's more than McDonald's. It's, <laughs> it's, are the likes of Monsanto, you know, the yeah. whole kind of... Uh, yeah, it's, it's happening all over. And But I, I'd be really curious to look at Afghanistan. Yeah, and I think it's like that's a modern history. So like we're looking at uh, post-war uh, Japan, it took us uh, decades to actually process what happened there with the dumping of, of wheat and the ramen uh, culture that grew. So we'll see what happens in Afghanistan. Anya, the next five countries, I, I when I'm reading the, all these deeply reported vignettes in all these countries, uh, these chapters, and I'm like, okay, She's just getting rolling. She's just getting going. Where are the next five? I think Thailand for sure, because Thai cuisine is such a top-down affair from the 40s. Fascinating history. I'll go to Brazil yeah. for the feijoada and the way it's come to represent the blending of indigenous African slave and uh, white uh, white Portuguese culture. Mm-hmm. Korea. Love, mm-hmm. love, love Korea. Yeah. And they've done such a huge push with their cuisine yeah. as part of this kind of K. The K- K- Korean K- wave. K power, yeah. Hell you, the Korean wave, which has affected all the, glo- the globe. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I really want to go to Ukraine uh, after they win the war, which is mm-hmm. hopefully very soon, and see how they rebuild it. Because you know, my last chapter is on borscht, but eating it here yeah. and how it really made me reconsider my own identity, how it made me renounce my Russianness mm-hmm. and kind of side with Ukraine. Um, the five, and I, I would go to the American South and work on barbecue. Yeah, except there's so many people doing such a good job on it. I, yeah, I, I don't you, know if I'll dare. Well, you would do it. You would do it in your own way. You would back into it. You would take the time and take the take the effort to to. to I would love to hear. Uh, have you write more about America? I think that would be amazing. Yeah, I would love. I would love that too. But we can see. read you in the pages of Afar. Yes, you're a contributing editor there. Where Where have you been for Afar? Anything anywhere good recently? Yes, my latest story is uh, on another great Ottoman city. Like Istanbul is on Thessaloniki in Greece. Okay. Uh, where there's uh, really, really interesting food stuff happening. I will check that out. Okay, on This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So, Anya, to close this interview, here's a rapid fire, fast and furious taste test. Are you ready? Hey. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, your favorite city to visit that nobody has gone to? Gaziantep in southeastern Turkey, great food capital, kebab, baklava, amazing place. So how do you get there from Istanbul? One hour flight, and the whole zone has been affected by earthquake, but Gaziantep is still okay, and the food is out of this world. Favorite city to visit where everybody has gone to? Not Paris. (laughs) I would have to say Tokyo. Yeah, Uh, because why? Oh, because the food culture is just so multi-layered and amazing, and uh, it just fascinates me. Your absolute favorite cookbook? Anything by Paula Wolford. I love her Eastern Mediterranean cooking. 
Uh, but anything she's written, I think she was such a pioneer of like complicated, slightly yeah. neurotic, neurotically obsessive uh, uh, approach to food, which everyone is doing now. Yeah, the, the testing alone and just the the effort that the publisher put in um, to make those books and happen. the cuisines that she opened up yeah. to the world is I and when a time when there was no like Google Drive exactly, which makes her no YouTube too. to watch, you know, an oh my gosh. Afghan grandma to, to prepare something. Oh my gosh, Paul, I can't imagine doing cookbooks back in the seventies. I can't imagine doing cookbooks now <laughs> or now. Yeah, the most underrated New York City restaurant? I have to say this place called Teacup Cafe, uh, which is in Elmhurst, Queens, in Little Thailand. And it's a very popular area now. There are like famous places there like Zab Zab and others. Yeah. But no one writes about Teacup Cafe. And it's just, I went, I went there with a friend yesterday and she lived in, in Bangkok for four years. And she oh. was like, oh my God, it's like being back in Bangkok. It's a cafe. It's a little place. They recently added barbecue, uh, hot pot, Slash barbecue and it's like always full of Thai hipsters and it's just it's just so cool. Teacup cafe, Teacup cafe. I love that. And you live in Jackson Heights, so you know yeah. Queens pretty well. Yeah. The most underrated piece of kitchen equipment. The garlic press. Can we please bring back the garlic press? Why do we have to microplane our garlic? I'm gonna link to a, a story in the show notes where we give high praise to the garlic press. Yeah, no, taste. the way it crushes it and uh, it's not that hard to wash. And, and, uh, and, and your fingernails, well, I mean, at least you don't get garlic under your fingernails, which is what happens when you grate so it. So how do you wash it then without getting garlic under your fingernails? Because I always get garlic. Oh, because I have a brush. I have this hard brush and I poke, 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 poke. It's the hard brush. I you, like the poking. Yeah, the poking is therapeutic. It definitely has like an oh, just put, Yeah, and you kind of see it come out. Oh, you just put it in the dishwasher, my God. Yeah. As a kid, I used to put Play-Doh in the garlic press. Kind of fun. Oh, okay. Your parents loved you, I'm sure. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> All right. Most overrated ingredient? Oh, matcha. <laughs> yeah. I can't stand another green chocolate. Yeah. Green coffee, green, oh no, yeah. Yeah, cooking with matcha is, is, is a tough hang. Yeah. I mean, when it's done well, it's amazing, but okay, you know. Your favorite fast food restaurant? Mm, any any taco place in my neighborhood. Yeah, just off the street. Do you have a favorite in mind? Yeah, Birria, the Birria, the Birialandia. Mm. Birria is so good. Just like, I mean, it's like, like yeah, hot take here, Matt. Like, beer is good. No, but like, birria is massive. Massive, yeah. And it's, it's it's very recent. I mean, it was eaten where it was eaten. Yeah. And suddenly it became like this huge fat here. And we're like, forget where it comes. So maybe my book, next book will be on birria. Who knows? You should. It would be amazing but to read. But with, with caldo, with a broth, please. Yeah, we definitely need to dip it. I, I think the queso birria with the dip. Oh, man. Late night diner order. Oh, uh, like a straight cheeseburger. With fries? Yeah. I mean, I don't go to diners too much. I don't either. It's not really my vibe, but a lot of people do. Yeah. No, yeah. but cheese, yeah, like cheese. A, like squishy bread, you know, like the whole kind of American cheeseburger thing. Last question. Favorite sandwich in the entire world? I would have to say bami. Yeah. And I make it myself a lot. Because, like, I have a house in Istanbul, no Vietnamese restaurants, but it's really easy to make, and you make it better at home, and I'm addicted. We had a sandwich draft here at Taste with the four to Eliza and I, Pat and Shalia. Number one pick, banh mi. Yeah, and it's got its own fascinating colonial history so in Vietnam, so maybe I'll write a book about that. Oh my gosh, so many books ideas, national, book ideas from this interview. Lots Man, of books Matt, ideas. what are you doing? We're here at a book publisher. How about that? It's my, like the juices are flowing here. My brain is exploding. Anya Van Bremnizen, what a great conversation. Thank you for joining This Is Taste. Thank you so much for having me. I love chatting to you. Hey, Matt, I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 10. You want to guess? (laughs) 
Is it three? Yeah, it's three because I want to talk about three things with you. Oh, I love three things. It's such a great time. I love this. I love this. I love this segment. It's reoccurring. Prime number, reoccurring segment, all wins. Yeah. Thanks for writing in, uh, readers. We had some we had some nice notes about this recently. So, uh, what's your first thing? Okay, spam has a new flavor. Whoa, for real, and it's it's actually a really good one. It's maple. Mm. So I, I I have to zoom out and say like we did this really cool spam episode with um, Esther Choi and and really uh, I've kind of familiarized myself a little more with spam as a brand. But they sent me their their newest flavor maple and they're positioning it as something that you saute and crisp in the pan and you put on top of waffles with maple syrup. And I'm like, yo, that is really delicious. Spam is so good. I, I'm a huge spam fan. Yeah, I love uh, maple bacon so much, so this seems like a very natural evolution of that to me. Completely. Like Canadian-style bacon, it, it it really works. And I like to see that Spam is actually breaking new flavors, and I feel like they should have a flavor contest. Okay, do you want to compete in I it? I think we should. Okay, we'll think on it. What's your first of three things? My first thing is cardamaro. Have you had this before? No. Cardamaro is not cardamom amaro. It is <laughs> as I thought. Cardoon amaro, which is a kind of thistle. Um, and I have had it a couple times in the city recently. I had it um, just over ice when I was visiting my friend at Claude, and then I was at Four Horsemen recently. Had that also to close out the meal. It's just really good. It's a little caramely. It's a little vegetal. It's kind of like a lighter chinar, which is the um, artichoke based. Yeah. Amaro, which thistles and artichokes are kind of all related. but Also it's, really fun to say, chinar. Yeah, chinar I love. A chinar spritz is my go-to, but if they have cardamaro, it just feels a little different, a little lighter. It's like really nice to have over ice. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan. I love it. I've never tried it, and if they have an NA version, I'm so there. Yeah. Great. We'll, ch- we'll check for it. Yeah, let's do it. What's your next thing? Well, when I was recently in Michigan, I popped over to Chicago, and on the return trip, I went to the Albanese Gummy Bear Factory in... Marionville, Indiana. Merrillville, Indiana. I'm sorry. Not Marionville. Merrillville, Indiana. Gummy Bear Factory. I think my heart rate just like elevated. Tell me everything. Do they have gummy bear molds? So... It was more of the factory store. So, yeah, you, you're, you're now disappointed, as tomorrow was as well. Our group was pretty disappointed. We couldn't go in and look at it actually made, but we were at the factory store of, I think, the best gummy bears around. And my takeaway is this. Gummy bears are so good when they're fresh out of the factory. <laughs> What's the difference? Well, first, they're not they're not like hard. They're not like toothsome. They're actually soft. But also the flavors haven't really melted away into the ether the way that like, you know, Haribo that have been in that bag since like 2022 tend to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, also, Absolute Discovery, they have these like really tart gummy bears and the branding and the tagline is starts sour, stays sour. <laughs> like the sour gummy bear that is really sour is amazing. It's sour all the way through. It's all the way through. They also had like grapefruit gummy bears, which I think Whoa. is an amazing flavor for a gummy bear. I would like this. This sounds this sounds great to me. Yeah. Do they have the really giant gummy bears? They had large format gummy bears, which I, I felt like I had to go like like classic sized. Like, I wasn't about to put a gummy bear on and, like, carve it up with, like, a knife and fork. Yeah, like, you're saying large format as if it's, like, a Magnum gummy bear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, the the, the Magnum style. No, I I just think going to a gummy bear factory store gives me a a higher appreciation. Albanese is, like, definitely my number one brand. I'm going to have to seek them out. I got a bag upstairs. Oh, great. Found. 
What is your next thing? My next thing is I went to Full Grown's Laundromat for dinner last yes. night in Greenpoint, which is such a beautiful tasting menu spot. They cycle in guest chefs. They have a chef in residence right now, Galen Kenamere, who was at Blanca in the city before. And uh, I had, like, amazing dessert. I mean, it was all great. But what stuck with me the most is this goat butter ice cream that I had nice. with uh, elderberry granita on top and then a little kind of cookie crumble Whoa. beneath it. A layered situation. And I feel like it reminded me how much I like goat dairy. And I think that it's maybe underutilized in desserts that are not quite so sweet, a little bit more savory because they have that goat tang. I love that. So when you do a multi-course meal in the middle of the summer in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, do you feel like, are you, are you like overheated by the end of it or was it paced correctly? Like, what do you, how do you feel about the actual meal itself? Yeah, I was nervous because I am not a big tasting menu person. Like I reached my limit with food, but it was the right amount of food. I didn't leave feeling like I had to be rolled out of the restaurant (laughs) or anything. They kept it pretty light. Um, and there were two desserts and the other dessert was also very cooling. It was a cucumber sorbet with, um, chapuline, uh, meringue slices on top and a little like mezcal drizzle. So it was kind of like if I saw that on the menu as a cocktail, I would order that in a heartbeat. So as a dessert, it was also really fun. Unbelievable. Cool. Yeah. I would definitely recommend if people want to do a tasting menu that isn't going to like club you over the head with like so much meat or other heavy things. It's called Fougrons? Yeah. um, Fougrons. Fougrons. Off my Paris trip, trying to pronounce it right. Yeah. They have, you know, they have a restaurant in Paris, in Paris, and then this is their kind of New York location right. that's always cycling through. But it was very fun. Very cool. Very cool. How about you? Last one is I'm really excited to read. Uh, Mark Van Hohenhocker wrote this book called Skyfaring. Are you familiar with his work at all? Have you heard this name, Skyfaring? No. Skyfaring. So he's a commercial pilot. He flies for British Airlines. And he wrote this book, I think it was like 2018, um, about like inside the cockpit. He's like an incredibly literary writer, very fluid, very lyrical with his writing. And he writes about what it's like to travel the world, travel time zones, and does it in a way that's almost dreamlike. I just really like his voice. And Skyfaring was a book I really enjoyed. And he just released his newest book called Imagine a City. Such a cool concept. So he He's obviously, as a commercial pilot for BA, British Airlines, he's traveling the world and he kind of meditates on some of his favorite cities, but he also flashes back to his childhood in New England. And he's able to kind of tie these two narratives together and and give this kind of like definitely this wanderlusty style of of prose that um, is very difficult to pull off and not seem kind of douchey. And he, he does in a way that I just love his writing. I hope to have him on the show. Uh, and I just also want to ask him what it's like to be a commercial airline pilot. It's like every everybody's dream is to have that job. Yeah, that sounds perfect for like a summer travel kind of read. Yeah, I think that's why they they put it on the summer. Good call. I was like, why? This is an interesting time to release this book. But yeah, it's definitely like a little bit of that travel. But um, Mark Van Hohenhocker is his name. And, and definitely check out this book. Cool. What's your last one? My last one is I just want to evangelize about a a food-related summer wellness hack, which is that if you get a sunburn, my favorite sunburn (laughs) technique is taking black tea bags and wetting the tea bag and then just kind of painting it onto your sunburn, almost like a watercolor situation. There's something about the tannins and the antioxidants in the black tea that makes it like a really effective home remedy for sunburns. And it's also, I think, kind of fun to get to be like painting the tea on your body, or at least I enjoy doing that. So recently when I was in Portugal, when I got a little sunburned, 
I did have aloe, but I also did this black tea trick as well, and I found it to be effective. So I just want to spread the word about that. I love this pro tip. I, I'm definitely pro aloe if I ever get a little burn in having the plant. Do you have an aloe plant growing up? I feel you probably um, did. I think we did have an aloe plant growing up in Los Angeles, but I also never got sunburned as a child at all. So we never used it. Um, I think it's like later in my life as I like left California and and just became paler in the winter that I've started to become sunburned. (laughs) Well, what a great tip. I mean, I feel like black tea, uh, you can drink it too. You can drink it too. You could make like a tea bath and then soak in it, but it would stay in your bathtub. So that's why I'm suggesting the painting tea bag approach. Have you seen theater camp yet? No, but I like that you're just asking me this unrelated. Unrelated. I do, I do want to see it. I have to. Like, I think about sunburn. I think about summer. And I am think about theater camp, this movie. But I, the filming of theater camp is close to both of our, our hearts. We, we have connections to the filming location up in Warwick, New York at Camp Kutz. Yes. And now defunct Jewish summer camp that I did go to for a weekend a couple like I mean, I said a couple years ago, but over 10 years ago. Yeah, you went to my wife uh, was a counselor there and a camper back in, in, in the day. And yeah, uh, it looks like amazing, like like a ride of a film. It's about theater camp, obviously. Yeah, I'm excited to see that. I feel like there's a whole separate ecosystem of, like, camp food we could discuss at a later date. <laughs> let's, let's do it. But uh, yeah, thanks for sharing three things. Anytime. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 